Ne me quitte pas, il faut oublier, tu peux s'oublier qui s'enfuit déjà. Oublier le temps des malentendus et le temps perdu, à savoir comment. Oublier ces heures qui tuaient parfois le temps du bonheur. À coup de pourquoi, ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas. It's FAQ NYC presents, we're the only podcast in the only city in the world, breaks into its usual programming to bring you new, different, limited series. I'm Harry Siegel, and this is the first of a three-episode year-end special called First. That's the name of a fabulous storytelling event that our founding executive producer, Alex Brooklyn, has been hosting for years with the poet Grace Bialecki in apartments, parks, empty storefronts, you name it. It's not the moth. There's no separation between the storytellers and their audience, and the stories aren't meant to be rehearsed and to come to tidy closes, but to be more like great yarns, loose ends very much included, that someone might share with a friend over a cup of coffee or a glass of beer, surprising the listener and even the storyteller in the process. Ari and I hosted the most recent salon with the theme of a New York Minute earlier this year at the Tribeca Loft of journalist, filmmaker, comic book writer, and editor, and all-around excellent New Yorker, Annie Nucenti, who shared many of her own stories on FAQ NYC in the episode The Girl from Marvel's Boy Club Bullpen tells all about Old Times Square. As to the stories you're about to hear now, we've cut out me and Harry for the most part, gabbing between each storyteller. As entertaining as we truly are, we get right to the stories. In this episode, you'll be hearing about drug work, first from Clifford Michelle, formerly of the city, and then from my dad, the one and only one-of-a-kind Steve Lynn, a stone storyteller who has the courage and the convictions. After that, it's some New York glamour and gloom from the filmmaker and writer Hugo Perez, and then the singer and actress Flo Anka, whose voice you just heard a taste of. A note for those getting the pod on YouTube that the video cuts out midway through Flo's performance. So let's jump right in with Cliff's story after this programming note from Harry. Thanks, Alex. All right, listeners, we need your help. FAQ NYC depends on you. We're part of a nonprofit newsroom called The City, and that means we rely on donations. And it's getting toward the end of the year, and that means the clock is ticking. We need to raise as much as we can before January 1st in order to start 2024 off strong. So please, if you've enjoyed listening this year, make a contribution now at thecity.nyc slash give. That's thecity.nyc slash give. I'll keep talking for a minute while you pull out your phone and enter the URL, which, again, is thecity.nyc slash give. Thecity.nyc slash give. Great. A donation of any amount will help us because we're a small nonprofit, so every dollar goes a long way. Chip in what you can, but you got it. 
thecity.nyc slash give. Once more, with feeling, that's thecity.nyc slash give. Thank you. And now, to the stories. I was definitely not planning to tell a story, but like somehow here I am. <laughs> so I think this is a story, if I had to make it a parable of like why raising kids in New York City is like the worst idea ever. Uh, <laughs> so my parents, like I was lucky enough, they always like took me to school all the time, like to an embarrassing age, like literally 15. So I went to New York City public schools my whole life and I grew up in Midwood. I went to school in Bushwick. And I was like, you know what, I'm getting a little old for this. I can handle this. I got this. Famous last words, always. Uh, <laughs> and so my parents were like, all right. So I had to take the B82 from Kings Highway to get to the L train in Canarsie to get to my school in Bushwick. All right. So I get to the bus stop. It's all good. Everything's fine. I'm waiting for the bus. And then this lady comes to next to me, pretends to stare off into space. And then I'm like, okay. It's kind of weird she sat next to me, but whatever. And then she's like, you look like a good kid. And then I'm like, that right there should have been a bit of a red flag. <laughs> but I'm like, okay, hi. Uh, and then she's like, look, um, like I really need like this medicine. And like, if you could just like help me. I was like, yeah, like how can I help you? She's like, I know it's gonna sound like different but it's just like because I took my medicine already like they're not gonna let me get like more of the medicine and I'm just like eating it all up like wow that's like fucked up like <laughs> like they're not gonna let you get your medicine and it's like yeah so like all you gotta do is just like go into the hospital across the street into the emergency room into the bathroom and like pee in this cup and then <laughs> and I was just like Okay, and then I'm like starting to see a little bit of the signs and I'm like, this is not, but then I've always been a people pleaser. And so it's like, all right, we can do this. <laughs> I was like, real quick, cause I gotta get to school. Cause my, my parents are Haitian American. And that means if they see one lateness on that goddamn <laughs> report card, they're gonna be like, no, 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 no. We saw when you left the house every single day. So I'm like, we got to go quick, all right? Because I got to meet the B82, and I got to get to Canarsie, because I got to get to Bushwick, and my parents can't see that. She's like, okay, yeah, sure. And then I go, into the, <laughs> I go into the emergency room, and there's no one there except for the security guard. And then he's just like, hi. And I'm like, hey, I just really got to use the bathroom. Is that, is that okay? Like, totally normal. And, uh, and then he's like, yeah, that's, that's fine. And then, so I go into the bathroom and it's like, that's when I started noticing like, damn, like maybe this is like the wrong thing to do. <laughs> and then cause like, there's like the cup right there. It has a seal. It's looking real official and I'm not official. And I'm also like 15. And then, <laughs> and then like, I'm like frozen with fear and like, I can't go. And then like for a really long time. <laughs> and then like, I finally like, in the cup and then uh i leave and i tell the security guard like i'm done using the bathroom just so you know and i'm like in my head i'm just like oh, man, that wasn't normal and i was like and i get outside he's like my friend's gonna take care of you I'm like your friend's gonna take care of you it's like what the hell's going on and there's like this guy with, like a bowler hat 
and literally like a Mickey Mouse t-shirt and tattoos. And then he's like, she got you to help me? She got you to help us? And I'm like, yeah. And then he's like, God damn. And I'm like, oh, you're nervous. I should be nervous. <laughs> and then so he's like, he walks me down the block and he's like, all right, how much she tell you I'd give you? And I was like, what? <laughs> and then in my head, I'm like, I'm about to make a killing right now. And I was like, $15. <laughs> he was like, okay. And he's like, pull out the biggest wad of cash I've ever seen in my 15-year-old life. And I'm just like, damn, I should have said more. But again, people, please, I'm not trying to like rock the boat. <laughs> and so he gives me 15. And he's like, yeah, man, like, honestly, like, you shouldn't be like hanging out with people like us. Like, <laughs> He's like, you should like, what you do in school? What you do in school? And in this mode, I'm like in full liar mode. I'm like, probably should not give them details. And like, you guys can't see this because I'm on the pod, but I'm like 5'7", like 220, like extremely cut. Like, <laughs> and I like definitely was in middle school. Like I'm trying to use sarcasm. I don't know if we can like go in the podcast. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I play basketball. He's like, basketball, basketball. Like, that's like great. He's like, you got to like stick with basketball. Like, you should not be, like, doing things like this. I'm like, y'all got me. Y'all told me. <laughs> anyway, so I got to school late. And I told all my friends. And they were like, Cliff, what the fuck? And yeah, that's what I love you to Anyway, so my dad is full of great stories. He's a great storyteller. Are, they, are, are all of them 100% true? We're going to say yes. And with that, I'm going to introduce one of my favorite people, my dad. This is Steve Lynn. Well, uh, thank you for that applause without uh, me even speaking. Anyhow, she's right on everything she said. It's 100%, right? I was a uh, drug smuggler, and I started... Uh, uh, smuggling when I was 14, not smuggling, but selling marijuana at 14 years old in the Catskills to the black bus ops. But the main thing I want to start off with saying before I tell my story that she wants me to tell is that after all these years, I really feel we have been vindicated. The smugglers, they were chasing us. I spent almost three years in prison because of it. And uh, I wanted to say a call out to people like Cochise and Jack and all these other people, Marshall, Dave, you know, uh, actually Barbie was one of them, actually. And she looked like Barbie. But to say that now we've come around to know that that was helping people, helped a lot of people. I hate to put it that way and make it so dramatic, but it was true. Now, a lot of you people are not my age. I'm 78 years old. And uh, no medication, no aches and pains. But I, and I attribute a lot of that to marijuana because it brings down my blood pressure. But I always want to call out to the people who did time, and now we can talk about it. You can actually say we were smugglers. From Thailand, I took the stick out of Thai sticks, if anybody knows what Thai sticks are, and all these other things. And we rolled seeds out of Mexican coming from the cowboys over the Rio border till boats off of here. This was when I first smuggled, was the north banks of North Carolina. 
because that's where the smugglers used to smuggle in the old days, it's all the jagged edges. And then we used to, I even flew a plane in from Mexico when I got my pilot's license. I wanted to do one trip, do it all. So I picked up weed in Mexico and flew to Texas and dropped it off. Pretty scary, though. that's it. So there's so much I can talk about, like being the first dealer with Carlos Lederer. I'm not a, proud of that because he was the head of the Medellin cartel. And he had me selling coke in New York City. And I quit because um, marijuana is a much softer drug and coke was turning everybody into rabid dogs. Like, hey, when do you got it? Where do you get it? How did I get it? Give me as much as you got. Like, Whoa. And this is everybody from uh, for everybody in the city. ABT, movies, uh, the whole entire Saturday night crew because I lived around the corner from where they lived. Anyhow, the story my daughter wants me to tell is when I was locked up at MCC Metropolitan Correctional Center where famous guy got hung. What was his name again? Epstein. <laughs> Epstein. <laughs> uh, and to tell you that he got hung is a, by himself is a joke. I, I met this guy a couple of times. Egomaniac, he ain't hanging himself. The two guards are away, and two guys got paid millions of dollars or whatever because they retired right away. <laughs> and they hung him. Instead of doing their tour, they put him in the cell and strung him up. Because, first of all, if you do business in New York City, you must do business with the mob at that level. And they don't want nobody talking ever. Anyhow, so here we go back to the story. MCC, get busted. It was the most liberal prison, that's what they said at it, said, this is the most modern prison. We all had a cell, one cell, no bunks, no bars, air conditioning, pool tables, television, and social nights. How's that? Which brings me back to the story about when he mentioned gangster. Uh, that's Frank Lucas. And he was in prison, and I got him to get <laughs> a conjugal visit sort of, with his wife in the kitchen out there. Because MC, MCC was a crazy, well, that story is, no, his wife threw a million dollars out the window when they come to get her, so they arrested her. So they were in the same place. Uh, he was on the sixth floor and she was on the fifth floor. And I, me and Yogi, the bookie, and uh, one or two of the uh, mob guys got them together. They were all connected. Anyway, the story goes... <laughs> Story goes like this. I just tricked them into getting my release early. That's another story, but they're not that, <laughs> they're not that smart. You know, they, they didn't get into this prison business because they're nuclear scientists. They're not that smart. So anybody who's really smart can just outwork them. I got my release more before anybody else did. So I had to go out and come back and be, being a nut job, smuggler, I smuggled in some gold weed because all they had, you know, these little smugglers that were in the prison had the worst shit in the world, like, you know, and they were rolling it like toothpicks. So, so what happened is, it's a big, uh, it's uh, Christmas, so we have a big Christmas party. And uh, me, Robert Campbell, who was the, I don't know if he's still alive, producer of uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, uh, we were the two entertainment guys. 
And uh, he was busted for a lot of cocaine in those days. <laughs> he used to have pictures of it. Really insane. Anyhow, uh, so we brought in a group. The mob came to us and said, look, we got to do the number one hit. I don't even know what the song was. It was by the Isotopes. And I said, who the fuck are the Isotopes? <laughs> well, they said, no, this is the number one hit. And the mob owns them. We're bringing them into the prison. I said, great. Me and Robert Kent will look good. You know, the Isotopes and everything. So we go get stoned, and we're like wasted to, to death. Isotopes come in, giant speakers to the ceiling. They start fucking blasting the prison off. I mean, really, just wild guitars, you know, real rock and roll, high-end shit. And then all of a sudden, lights go out. Everybody has to go back in the cells. All the cops came in with their guns drawn. Well, what happened was, the mob in the big speakers brought in air hammers. And while they were playing, they drilled out the wall. And they struggled, they went down the, the wall. And you could look this up in the papers, it's uh, 1976, I think. Uh, and they went down the wall and two of them escaped. One broke his leg, one got caught on the thing. So you think they would go after me and Robert Campbell because we're like, you know, that's, I'm in my cell, stoned out of my mind. Nothing. That's how they are. I mean, nobody even questioned us why we bring in the isotopes. You know? And there's so many stories, but I liked always throwing a little fun. There was so much fun in those days. We were doing high level. I did hundreds of thousands of pounds from Thailand by boats smuggling off the, um, the trench you know, the trench along Nova Scotia, bringing them in on July 4th into Newport where there's 10,000 sailboats. How are they going to see, like, 10 sailboats? But, uh, you know, I got sold out as usual. But anyhow, it was fun in those days. We were doing a great thing. I thought, you know, we were doing a good thing. It was good, good, good. It was fun for us, fun for the people who made money, Fun for the people who got the product. And, you know, I just feel at this time, there's a million stories I can tell about the smuggling and getting caught in the, uh, in the uh, Sinai Canal. We had to pay $100,000 to some Egyptians. But um, <laughs> there's one story after another like that. One thing I want to just say, because it's extremely funny, is my mother always wanted to stay in touch with me. They had a restaurant called B.O.B. Biteable on Broadway. And it was the first vegetarian restaurant with a bar. Madonna's favorite restaurant. It's in the biography of the chauffeur. So, uh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, so she always wants to know where I am because she knew my history and my past and insanity. So she would call me, like, how are you doing, whatever. So I'm in the middle of Thailand. Harvesting 100, 120,000 pounds of weed, you know, stoned out of my mind, doing opium in town, doing opium, doing, and then, you know, getting this. We ship backpack machines over and, and get it. So all of a sudden, this general comes to me, one of these long, like, things you see in the movies, World War II. He says, hey, you got this emergency phone call for you. I say, I say what? I'm in the middle of nowhere. He goes, no, no, no. He comes up to me, gives, gives to me. So it's this Dave LaPointe, who's a 
worked in my restaurant, later became my partner in Burritoville. He goes, your mom's on the line. What am I going to do? You gave me this number for emergencies. She wants to talk to you. I said, put her on. Okay. She gets on. Steve, how are you doing? I said, great. Restaurant's doing good. Everything's good. She goes, you're not doing? No, I wouldn't be. Come on, Ma. You know, how would you think I'm going to do that again? I would be stupid. Don't All right, Steve, you know, she did everything for me. That's a mother who's a mother. She smuggled me in bagels, lox, and cream cheese into prison so I could have a meal. That's the kind of mother she was. But anyhow, I could talk on and on. But the thing of being in the jungle, in the middle of the jungle, and I had, I had to have a gun and all this other stuff, acting like stoned-out big tough guy. Uh, when the general came up to us, he always guards the weed, going to the thing. Then the Navy takes it to the ships. and then Anyway, it's a long story there. But then my mother always called me. And you know something? She never said a bad word about me. It was like, all right, all right, you did it. That's okay. And she saw me in every jail I was at and uh, and so on and so forth. But that's part of my history. But I got something like this. You know, that's worth everything right there. This is uh, it's a Hugo Perez. She's giving me the shorter microphone because uh, it's the, the right height for me. Uh, thank you, Alex. Thank you, Annie uh, Nascenti, for hosting us tonight. Uh, thank you, Walter Cadillac, at whatever party you're at tonight because uh, that kid knows how to party. Uh, so uh, my story is about a New York night. It's not about a New York minute, although there are some very nice minutes that are part of the story. Uh, it takes place in 1996. I was recently out of college. I was working with a, a novelist named William Kennedy, uh, who's best known for Ironweed that was made into a movie with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. And I was at, in his office one day when he was opening his mail, and he got an invitation uh, for the 25th anniversary party of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas that was going to happen at the Lotus Club. So who here knows who Hunter Thompson is? Hopefully most of you guys, yeah. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, who's read that? Some of you. Okay, so uh, Hunter was play, most famously played by Johnny Depp in, uh, in the movie directed by Terry Gilliam. So anyway, so, uh, so he was opening this invitation. And he was like, oh, shit, I'm not going to be able to go. Uh, and I was, I was just a kid. I didn't understand certain things. And, I, and so I was just like, hey, like, if you're not going, can I, can I have your RSVP? <laughs> so I didn't really understand what I was asking for, but he just kind of like nodded and uh, and then like three days later, he calls me up. He's like, yeah, I just spoke to them. You're on the list. Uh, I, I had just started to, uh, I was not living in New York City. I was living in the Berkshires, but I, was, I had just uh, met this girl, Sarah, in New York City, and I was coming in a lot. Uh, and so I called her up and I said, listen, I'm going to take you out on a date. I'm not going to tell you where we're going because I still didn't believe like we were going to get into this thing. And just as I was like, just dress nice. Uh, and so the party was at the Lotus Club. Uh, it's off Fifth Avenue, like 66th Street. It's like one of the old school clubs. And so we both dressed up. We shut up there. And, you know, we walk in the door, and there's this huge banner for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And Hunter Thompson is, like, 
at the top of the steps. And Sarah freaks out. She's like, that's Hunter Thompson. I was like, yeah. Uh, and then we didn't actually say hi to Hunter then. Um, we just like went to the bar, got a couple of drinks. And then, you know, there's a lot of drinking involved that night, not surprisingly. Uh, you know, and, and also it was a very good date. You know, Sarah and I went into like the broom closet for a while. Um, and at a certain point late in the evening, we came out um, and, and, you know, I think like George Plimpton was standing on a chair making a speech and, you know, there's just a lot of, you know, and, and um, Sarah needed a cigarette. So she bummed one from Mick Jagger and had Johnny Depp light it for her because it was that kind of a night. I basically later found out that they invited like 200 really famous people or eminent people. William Kenny was very eminent. And he had somehow just gotten them to sub this like kid that worked for him. And so we were like the, the, the only not famous people at this party. So this is like late in the evening, like three in the morning. Two, no, it was like two in the morning. And we, we, had ne- we hadn't said hello to Hunter yet. And so we're like, oh, we're like, where is he? And, and we couldn't find him. So I thought, who's going to know where Hunter is? And I was like, you know, the bartender, bartender's always a good bet. They always know what's going on. So we went over and I was like, you know, do you know where Hunter is? And he kind of looks both ways and he says, try the Four Seasons. Uh, so the Four Seasons is like four blocks away. And so I was like, I was thinking, oh, like he's, you know, I don't know, there's a rooftop bar or something, whatever. So we go over to the, four, we walk over to the Four Seasons, Sarah and I. Uh, and as we walk into the lobby of the hotel, Johnny Depp and Matt Dillon and a couple of women are walking in and we're like, well, they were at the party we were just at. So let's just go into the elevator with them. And, and so we did. And, and we wound up at, uh, at the after party in Hunter's hotel room. Um, to which you, we were definitely like the least famous people. There's like 40 people and they were all like super famous. And, uh, and we were both pretty also kind of drunk at this point. So it was, uh, it was one of these nice suites that has like a, had like a huge balcony with like a, re- you know, uh, on the 34th floor. And we were out on the balcony and Sarah's a little, you know, she's kind of pretty drunk and, and she starts to walk in the balustrade 34 flights up. And then Hunter's on the other side of the balcony. He sees her, and he runs over, and he picks her up, and he puts her down. He says, like, little lady, I don't need this kind of trouble. And she's like, I love you, Hunter. And she gives him, like, a hug. And amazingly, he doesn't kick us out. Um, short while later, um, he had, Hunter had ordered a bunch of room service, like hamburgers and french fries that were all sitting next to his bed in the master bedroom. And so Sarah and I climbed into his bed. We were... <laughs> We were eating as like cold room service because there's nothing more satisfying like at three in the morning than like cold French fries. And, and then there's also like this kind of like, you know, beautiful young lady who's also lying in bed with us. And there's and also Rolling Stone is sponsoring this whole party. So we're a bunch of Rolling Stone magazines. So we're lying in bed, like eating Hunter Thompson's French fries. And we're like going through this magazine with this like woman we don't know. And then all, we open to a page and we realize like, wait a second. This entire, the, this face on this entire page of Rolling Stone magazine is the face of the woman lying in bed with us. And it turns out it was Kate Moss. Because she had come with, Hunter, with uh, Johnny Depp, and Johnny Depp was like, he was such a fanboy for Hunter Thompson that he totally ignored Kate Moss that night. So she, instead of hanging out with Johnny Depp, she was lying in bed with me and my friend Sarah eating French fries and looking through Rolling Stone magazine. Um, so at a certain point, I don't know, later, time is very fuzzy, 
But, uh, but later that evening, um, PG O'Rourke kicked us out because Hunter Thompson had passed out in the bathtub. And so we were all like ushered out. Everybody else, like there's a line of limousines outside and everybody's getting into their cars. And Sarah and I take the R train back to her apartment on Atlantic <laughs> Avenue in Brooklyn. And that's kind of like the New York minute is like that, you know, when you're waiting at the subway, like it's 4.30 in the morning. You've just been in, like in Hunter Thompson's hotel suite and it's like, it's gonna be 35 minutes until the R train shows up to take you home. <laughs> So anyway, so, I mean, that was one of, my, one of the great nights uh, for me, one of the great New York nights, and the kind of night that only really happens in this great city that we live in. Uh, and uh, before I conclude, I just want to say I've, I've been here long enough that I suffer Stockholm Syndrome in relationship to New York. You know, I'm like part of the Symbionese Liberation Army uh, in terms of my love for New York. Uh, during the pandemic... I had a friend who fled to Tulsa, Oklahoma because her friend owned a hospital out there and she could get a ventilator if she needed one. And then she would call me drunkenly every night, like at midnight, be, and like scream at me like, why are you still in New York City? Like, what are you doing in New York? And, uh, you know, eventually, like after several weeks of this, I just had to say, you know, I'd rather die in New York than live in Tulsa. Um, so I'll just end with that. Thank you. Hello, Anka. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I I changed the, the spelling of my name so it, it would sound like my French name. <laughs> so I I have a rent stabilized apartment and I like to think of myself as a cockroach, right? Because I'm not going anywhere. And I do have an Italian neighbor upstairs who thankfully is out of a job, so he cooks for me for free, and then I give him my city bike key so that he could ride on electric for free. So we're good. So the story is about, like when you're French, you can't say that you're an immigrant, right? Um, but you have to do immigrant shit. So when my sister was 13, she came to visit me, and um, I was nine and a half years older than her. And I was, uh, the only thing that my visa allowed to do was to work as an actress, right? So I was doing like uh, stand-in and like background stuff on set. And then one day they call me and it's at a, a stadium. It's at the Met Stadium. And I've gone to do jobs at the, you know, uh, New Jersey Stadium. I forgot what it's called. And basically you have like a lot of actors and a lot of food. And I'm like, come along, right? So I get into the SAG bus with my sister, and she's 13. She's not allowed to be on that bus. But, you know, what am I going to do? Like, so she gets on, and we go to the Mets stadium, and it's an actual game. And <laughs> so the SAG rep, like, or not rep, the, 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 the production assistant, I forgot what it's called. Anyway, she's like, they get her with me into the Mets stadium, and it's, it's an actual game. So they never really use us. Right? So it's, you know, maybe five hours. We're waiting and eating like regular actors. And so at the end, they're like, does anybody want to stand in? Right? So that means 10 or $15 more. Uh, and so I'm like, me, right? And so they pick me because of what I like, this, the height or what I look like. So now I have to work. But my sister is here, and it's, I have to go to the parking lot in the trailer or whatever. So I give my little sister, who doesn't speak any English, my cell phone. And then uh, I go to wait on a trailer. 
And so I guess there's a like a French producer who starts talking to me. So I'm just comfortable, I'm relaxed. And they're like, no, it's in the other one. And I go in the other trailer and I'm waiting. And then who comes in? Well, Robin Williams. And he starts like, he start. I mean, like, so basically I'm like, oh my God, the last time I worked with you was in Central Park. And then there was a coyote, and it was, it, was, it was a film called August Rush. And I'm telling him this, this crazy story, which is true. They stopped shooting the movie for an hour and a half or something because the coyote was in the park, and there was paparazzis everywhere and stuff. Meanwhile, I'm telling all this to Robin Williams, right? I'm on a bench, and I'm calling to France because I need letters of re recommendations for my O-1 visa. And then I stop, and I was like, well, I mean, I didn't really work with you, Uh, but that, that, I mean, I was working that day and then he goes, oh, hi, I'm Robin. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> anyway, I, it just lasted one minute to do one photo of somebody for, for, for like being like that was supposed to be on the pedestal. I don't know. I called from a random cell phone, my own phone number and found my little sister at the end of a Mets game and... That was it. <laughs> But if you want to, uh, I can sing a little bit of a song. And, and maybe I was thinking to, to acknowledge uh, the agony that it must be for people who have uh, family members or loved ones that have suicidal thoughts, right? I don't. But um, yeah. Ne me quitte pas, il faut oublier. Tu peux s'oublier qui s'enfuit déjà. Oublier le temps des malentendus et le temps perdu. À savoir comment oublier ces heures qui tuaient parfois. Le temps du bonheur à coup de pourquoi. Ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas. Ne me quitte pas, moi je t'offrirai des perles de pluie venues de pays où il ne pleut pas. Je creuserai la terre jusqu'après ta mort pour couvrir ton corps d'or et de lumière. Je ferai un domaine où l'amour sera loi, où tu seras roi, où je serai reine. Ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas. Ne me quitte pas, je ne veux plus pleurer, je ne veux plus parler. Je resterai là à te regarder, à te désirer, à t'écouter chanter et puis rire. Laisse-moi devenir l'ombre de ton ombre, l'ombre de tes mains, je ne dirai plus rien. Ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas, please, don't leave me now. Thank you. FAQ NYC is a part of the city. 
a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting journalism that serves the people of New York. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to support our work is by setting up a monthly recurring donation at thecity.nyc slash give. If you already make a monthly donation and want to add a special one-time gift, you can also do that at thecity.nyc slash give. FAQ NYC also receives support from P&T Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. The podcast is a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists, and is affiliated with the Colin Powell School at CUNY's City College, where our co-host Christina Greer is one of the Moynihan Public Scholars Inaugural Fellows. Our hosts for this episode were Alex Brooklyn and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. And I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. Thank you to our storytellers, Clifford Michelle, Steve Lynn, Hugo Perez, and Flo Anka. And to Annie Nocenti for hosting the Thirst Storytelling Salon. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more. <laughs>